Happy New Year, or Happy New Year's Eve at least. Uh, my name is uh, Brett, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church. And today is not only the last day of the year and the last Sunday of the year, but it's also a family fifth Sunday. And so while there's some uh, empty pews this morning, we've also got some kids in here who are not running around right now, racing to their classes to learn the next attribute of God in their curriculum. That's because they're going to be hanging out with us today for the remainder of, of the, the service this morning. And so even as I speak this morning, church, let me encourage you to pray a, a quick prayer even now uh, that God would bless their presence with us. And children, as I always say, you are welcome here, and we're glad you're, you're sitting with us, and we pray that as you sit under the, the word of God this morning, that, that God would bless you and, and that you would see Jesus. So we are at the very end of the year, right? This is the last Sunday, and it falls on New Year's Eve. And of course, as is customary around this time of year, we like to think a little bit about New Year's resolutions. New Year's resolutions. It's popular, right? How are we going to change? What, what, what are we going to improve in our life? In the prep for this sermon, I researched the, the top resolutions that, especially in America, uh, that, that people want to pursue in the new year. Here are the top eight, according to one study. Many of these will not be surprising. Improved mental health, improved fitness, weight loss, improved diet, improved finances, giving up smoking, learning a new skill, and making time for hobbies. Maybe some of these you've, you've pursued in, in past years as you've, uh, in a sense, tried to turn over a new leaf. So a lot of these are not surprising. What's also not surprising is that over half of, of those who make resolutions fail to carry them out, right? We've all been there. We, we make a resolution, and it, it gets around the middle, of the middle of the year, or maybe it gets maybe one month into the year, and we're like, well, that was a good try. It, it's, uh, it, maybe it's not surprising that, that there's actually an unofficial holiday called New Year's Resolution Recommitment Day, and it takes place on June 1st, halfway through the year. And so if you are looking to recommit around month six, um, don't worry, June 1st is coming, and you, can, and you can start over from scratch. Now, as Christians, we are to be renewed day by day, right? The Lord is continuing to, to sanctify his people, to, to put off the old man, as it's called, and, and to put on Christ. And we don't necessarily need a specific day to, to make changes, Right? But at the same time, God in his history with his, with his people has used holidays and certain festivities and, and uh, uh, occurrences to promote the sanctification of his people. Think of the Israelites. They had a lot of festivals to keep, a lot of celebrations to keep, a lot of remembering, a lot of continuing to persevere, and God used special occasions to promote the sanctification of his people and so we, as we enter 2024, and we're on New Year's Eve, the cusp, a few hours as the ball drops, uh, I thought it would be uh, interesting and appropriate to consider what is Hagerstown Church's New Year resolution? What is Hagerstown Church's New Year resolution? If we had to pick one, what would it be? As I ask that question, there's probably a lot of things that are flooding through your minds right now, right? The, the, the scriptures call Christians to, to pursue a lot of things, right? We, we think of, of, of the Apostle Paul's uh, admonishment to, to the church in Colossae, 
right? This is what he says. It's a long text. I'm going to read it, though. He calls the Colossae church, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexually immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. He goes on. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give thanks to God the Father through him. In this one section of Paul's letter to the Colossians, there are 27 things that Paul is calling them to either do or not do. Now, we got some very uh, optimistic and, and bold folks in the room this morning, but that's a lot of resolutions to pursue in 2024, 27 of them. So how do we sum up these kind of commands that are not just in the, the letter to the Colossians, but in, in the, uh, the whole of the scriptures? How do we sum them up into one resolution, if that's what we're going to do this morning? Now, Paul sums this up in saying that we are to put off the old self and put on the new. That's kind of his summation to the church of Colossae. And I think that's a fitting summary. But I think there's an even broader, broader summary that really putting the self, putting the new self on actually comes out of. And we're actually going to see that today in Matthew 7. So if you've got your scriptures this morning, we're going to turn to Matthew 7, starting in verse 24. Let's see if you can see what our resolution is going to be this year. Matthew 7. Verses 24 to 27. This is going to be our primary text this morning. We're going to be in a lot of texts this morning. It's what we call a topical sermon. We're not working through a book of the Bible right now. We will be, will be next week. But for now, we're spending one, one sermon looking at one idea. Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27. This is the word of the Lord. Everyone, then, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, you can surely see our resolution poking through this text. In the upcoming year, may I submit to you as a church that we should resolve ourselves to build our house on the rock, to build our house on the rock. Now, we can't really commit ourselves to a simile, right? We would be building contractors and, and surveyors if we were all just going to strive to literally build our house on a rock this new year. 
but Jesus is using a simile here of building a house to point to the actual truth that he's communicating, the actual truth that we want to grasp this morning, our resolution. Jesus wants a people who hear his words and do them. A people who hear his words and do them. Before we continue this morning, let's, let's pray and ask God to bless his word. Father, we, we do ask that, and, and we ask that because we recognize that um, your word is profitable for teaching and correction and reproof and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Lord, we need your word more than anything else this morning, and we ask that you would bless it, that you would shape and fashion us according to it. And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Now, the verses that we've just read in Matthew 7, they come at the very end of arguably the, the greatest sermon ever preached. We did a series on the greatest letter ever written. This is perhaps the greatest sermon ever preached. Jesus, the God-man, the Word become flesh. By the way, that's no more remarkable now that Christmas is over than it was last week, right? Jesus, the God-man, the fully God, fully man, he's preaching to the people, he stands before them, as re- or rather he sits, as is the custom of a rabbi during that time. And he preaches what would become one of the most well-known sermons of all time, what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, he has a lot to say. He preaches on blessings, salt and light, the law, anger, adultery, divorce, oaths, retaliation, enemy love, giving, praying, fasting, treasures, anxiety, judging others, the love of the Father, the golden rule, false teachers, and even his return. There's a lot in those three chapters in the Sermon on the Mount. And over 2,000 words later, Jesus concludes his message with these words. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The parallel passage in Luke 6 sheds even more light on on Jesus' exhortation. Luke records Jesus saying, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid his foundation on the rock. So it's plain that that Jesus is wanting followers who, who not only listen intently to what he has to say, but, but completely align their lives with his words. And even though we've started in Matthew 7, that 7, the Sermon on the Mount is not the only area in which the scriptures speak to this idea of, of hearing the word and doing the word. And so let's look at the, the overarching testimony of the scriptures. Jesus says in Luke 8 that his brothers and sisters are those who hear the words of God and do them. A few chapters later, there's a woman in the the crowd, and she cries out to Jesus, and she says, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breasts at which you nursed. And what does Jesus respond? Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Is not the parable of the sower, which we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is is it not a a parable about hearing and doing? Right Of the four soils, only, only one hears the word, understands it, and and bears fruit. Now, it shouldn't be surprising if we see this theme in the New Testament that we're also going to see it in the Old Testament. 
the Israelites as a nation, if, if we're going to sum up the, the Israelites for all their shortcomings that we see, um, they, they could be characterized as those who heard the words of God but did not do them. They heard but they did not do. The prophet Jeremiah, he receives this word from God. He says, and the Lord said to me, proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, I brought upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. Ezekiel, likewise, records these words. One person speaks to another, each saying to his brother, Come and hear what the message is that comes from the Lord. So my people come to you, Ezekiel. They come to Ezekiel in crowds. They sit in front of you and hear your words, but they don't obey them. Their mouths go on passionately, but their hearts pursue dishonest profit. Yes, to them you are like a singer of passionate songs who has a beautiful voice and plays skillfully on an instrument. They hear your words, but they don't obey them. If I was to sum up this Ezekiel passage, those who hear the words of God but don't do them are like someone who's listening to music and their emotions are stirred. They, they, they see the beauty of the lyrics that they're hearing, but it goes no further than that. You know, the people in Ezekiel's day, they love to hear him utter words of prophecy, but they didn't leave transformed. They didn't leave changed. We've looked at some passages in Luke We've looked at Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But if you, if you know your scriptures, you know that I've maybe left out the most famous passage in the scriptures about hearing the word of God and doing it. It's found in the book of James. James, perhaps more than any other uh, New Testament writer, is concerned that, that God's people hear the word of God and respond. This will be on the screen. James writes, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Here's the key verse. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Hearing the word of God, but not doing it, is like looking at yourself in a mirror and then forgetting what you look like. That's silly, isn't it? Right? And yet we still go back to the mirror often, right? That, that, that's what James is likening, this idea of, of not responding to the, the word of God. You may be asking, what, what is prompting James to spend so much time in his letter 
reinforcing time and time again that the people of God need to, uh, in a sense, align their lives with the words that they have heard. And as I was meditating and, and studying through this, through this idea, uh, the Spirit really brought to my mind this idea that, that James was the physical brother of Jesus. And where am I going with that? James being the physical brother of Jesus. You know, what we read a few moments ago from Luke 8, and, you know, blessed are those, my brothers are those who hear the words of God and do them, right? Well, what's the context there? Well, the context is, again, Luke 8, his mothers and brothers are coming to him. They could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. That's the context, but even, even the greater context is that James and the rest of his family thought that Jesus was crazy. They thought he was out of his mind, and they, they wanted to forcibly bring him out of the mission field and back home. Look at Mark 3 when you get a chance. Right, we, we see that, 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 that James, even, even Mary herself, was a little concerned about what Jesus was doing. And so you can imagine that when Jesus' response got back to his family, that the, my brothers and sisters are those who hear the word and do, that, do it, you can imagine that they probably doubled down on, on their belief that he was a little bit out of his mind. The, the, the point of this is that remarkably and, and beautifully, we, we find out later, specifically in the book of Acts, that, that some, of James, or some of Jesus' brothers, in fact, believed in him. They trusted in him as the Messiah. We know for a fact that James did, and, and Jude as well. And so James, a physical brother of Jesus, a son of Joseph and Mary, was now a spiritual brother of Jesus. I mean, that's remarkable, right? Beautiful. And you can imagine that, Jesus be, or that James began to remember things that his brother used to say. Things like, my brothers are those who hear the words of God and do it. <laughs> The, the, the similarity with James 1.22 can't be missed, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. James's whole life was, was radically transformed by his brother Jesus. And, and James wanted to, in his letter, to make sure that, that Christians not only heard the word, but then responded, and their lives would, would become revolutionary, transformative. And so we see that, that, that in the Old and the New Testament, there's this, this purveying theme of, of hearing the word of God and doing it. But even outside the scriptures, Christians throughout the ages have picked up on this theme. And I think that that gives us even more confidence that this is indeed a, a biblical concept. Well, one of the most famous examples of, of, of this happening is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, Christian and faithful are continuing their journey to the celestial city. And they come across a man named Talkative. And some of you may know the, the rest of the story. Faithful is very excited to see a fellow traveler on the road. And so he strikes up a conversation with Talkative. And it starts out fairly well. Talkative loves talking about God. Talkative says this. He says, there's nothing so pleasant and so profitable as to talk of the things of God. In so doing, a man may get knowledge of many things, such as the vanity of earthly things, and the benefit of heavenly things in general. More particularly, a man may learn the necessity of the new birth, the insufficiency of our works, the need of Christ's righteousness, and so forth. Besides this, a man may learn by talk 
what it is to repent, to believe, to pray, to suffer, and the like. By this also, a man may learn what are the great promises and consolations of the gospel to his own comfort. Further, by this, man may learn to refute false opinions, to vindicate the truth, and also to instruct the ignorant. And as Faithful is talking too talkative, he's glad to have a companion who, who loves to talk about spiritual things. But then the story turns. Christian pulls Faithful aside, and it, 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 we find out that, that Christian knows about this guy. He actually was in the same city, the city of destruction, where Christian began his journey. And he, he's heard of talkative, and he warns Faithful. He says, true religion has no place in his heart or house or conduct All his boasted religion lies merely in his tongue. He talks of prayer, of repentance, of faith, and of the new birth, but he only knows how to talk of them. Christian goes on. He says, Talkative thinks that merely hearing and saying will make a good Christian, and thus he deceives his own soul. Hearing is but as the sowing of the seed. Talking is not sufficient to prove that fruit is indeed in the heart and life. We are sure that on the last day, men shall be judged according to their fruits. It will not be said then, did you believe, but were you doers or talkers only? All shall be judged accordingly. The end of the world is compared to our harvest, and you know men at harvest want nothing but fruit. Not that anything can be accepted by God which is not done in faith, but I only desire to show you how insignificant the profession of talkative will be on that day. After this, faithful begins to kind of take a new strategy talkative, and he starts to ask more experiential questions, um, maybe more uh, deep heart questions, you may call them. And maybe not surprising, talkative starts to get a little frustrated. And Christian even says that this is what's going to happen. When you start actually talking about experiencing the Word of God and transforming your life, uh, talkative's going to be upset. He's going to get angry. He's going to get defensive. And that's exactly what happens. Talkative ends up just leaving, and we never see him again in the story. It's a tragic end to, to this part of Pilgrim's progress. For me and for many others, it's one of the most memorable and poignant parts of the entire story. And as the book transitions to the next part of the story, Faithful, he laments, he says, How talkative at first lifts up his plumes. How bravely does he speak, how he presumes, to drive down all before him. But so soon as Faithful talks of heart work, like the moon, that's past the fool, and to the wane he goes, and so will all, but he who heart work knows. It's a vivid poem in the middle of, of this prose, and, and it's, again, one of the most uh, poignant parts of the story. We must not just be hearers only, deceiving ourselves, but we must strive to be doers as well. And so as we've seen the scope of Scripture and as we've seen the, even a, a, an example of Christians throughout the ages picking up on this theme, we see that the Christian life is, is one of doing. It's one of doing. It's not just believing. And Jesus says that it's those that do the will of God, that do the will of God who are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we need to resolve to do what the Word says. Now, a bit transitionary here. Perhaps at this point in the sermon, uh, you're starting to ask questions, or or, or maybe you have some concerns as as you've heard uh, the content of the sermon thus far. Maybe you're asking questions like this, so they'll be on the screen. Won't continually emphasizing obedience 
inevitably lead to guilt in the Christian life. Another question we may be asking ourselves is, can obedience be overemphasized in the Christian life? And a third question is, is hearing and doing an oversimplification of the Christian life, of Christian living? Maybe you're asking one of these questions, or maybe all of these questions, this morning as you've heard thus far this sermon. And I want to try to respond to these questions and work through them. The first question that we want to seek to, to handle is, is this question of what will, will us not continually talking about obedience in church and sermons, will that not inevitably lead to guilt in the Christian life? Will that not inevitably lead to guilt? There are some of us here this morning who, who live the Christian life with what I like to call a, a low-grade fever of guilt. It's kind of always there. It's kind of just always kind of riding above, right above the surface. You've believed a lie that, that God is not actually pleased with you. Now, you, you believe that, that he's justified you, and in the courtroom, you're innocent. You, you, you cling to that great uh, doctrine of the Reformers, the doctrine of the Scriptures, justification by faith alone, and you're confident that you have a standing with God, but at the same time, you can't help but feel that God is disappointed, that God is disappointed with you. When you hear a sermon about obedience and, and holiness and, and fruit-bearing, a, a sermon like this, a sermon about hearing and, and doing, you, you feel crushed under, under the weight of what you perceive to be God's expectations. And you may be asking, great, God demands more of me now, and I can't seem to measure up with what he already is expecting of me. You may be feeling that, that God this morning is more like a burdensome taskmaster, taskmaster than, than a loving father. So I want to speak to you this morning. Again, if you're asking this question, okay, if we keep talking about obedience, it's just going to promote guilt in the Christian life. If this is you this morning, I want this day to be the day that, that you break free from that, that you break free from this, this low-grade fever of guilt. Christ-likeness, sanctification, holiness, fruit-bearing, these ideas, these truths, these realities are not in themselves capable of producing guilt because they're things that come from God. The problem lies in, in our perception of them, our perception. You might call that, say that our perception is the real culprit here that, that produces this, this just constant uh, you know, guilt that's right above the surface. So when you hear, going forward, let me ask you, when you hear a sermon on obedience, when you uh, come across a part in the scriptures that, that calls you to further submissiveness, I want you to remember these three things, and they're going to be on the screen. I pray that this is encouraging to you. Number one, God is as pleased with you now as he is with Jesus. God is as pleased with you now, right now, as he is with Jesus. Your obedience is not going to cause God to be any more satisfied with you than he already is in Christ. Do you believe that? Do you cling to such a truth? That, that God is satisfied in you now as he is in his own very son. Remember, what did God say about his son? Not at the end of his ministry, when all the work had been done, 
But at the beginning, he said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And if we're in Christ, we have that same pleasure from the Father. God says in Zechariah that he rejoices over us with gladness, with gladness, and exults over us with singing. That's Zechariah 3.17. I would encourage you to memorize that verse. Again, he rejoices over you with gladness, exults over you with loud singing. And so, Christian, your union with Jesus this morning and going forward, it's the foundation of obedience, and it's the nullifier of all guilt. Not just guilt when we, we commit some grievous sin, but the guilt of not measuring up. The, the guilt of maybe feeling, I'm just a spiritual failure. God is as pleased with you right now as he is with Jesus. Number two, the grace of God frees you to obey. The grace of God frees you to obey. When you feel shackled by the weight of obedience, remember, it's the grace of God that is enabling you and freeing you to obey. And this is the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel says that that Christ has secured for us grace. He's freed us from the condemnation of the law. We've been free to do what? To obey. Not from a place of guilt, not from a place of trying to measure up, but from a place of grace, the grace that's been lavished upon us. The Christian life is a gift. It's not a burden. And I think that sometimes we forget that. Christian life is not a burden. It's a gift. It's a gift of grace. Number three, another thing that we forget often, Christ's yoke is easy and his burden is light. We struggle to see how Christ's yoke can be easy and his burden is light when there seems to be so many expectations placed on us as Christians, so many things to hear and do in the scriptures. Jesus said, come all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And yet for some, this life, this Christian life, feels more burdensome and and heavy laden than before Christ ever bid us come in the first place. If that's you this morning, put that aside. Put that away. Because the reality of it is is that 1 John 5.3 says that the commandments of God are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. This is the testimony of 1 John 5 and countless other verses. And so if we react to the call for further obedience with with anything but rejoicing, we misunderstand the gospel. Because the gospel is the key to reconciling both Jesus' call to the weary to have rest and his call to be obedient. The yoke of Jesus is easy because he's already fulfilled the law in us. He's already fulfilled the law. The burden that he places on us is light because he's already borne the burden of our sin on the cross. So when we rest in this reality, the commandments need not be guilt-laden burdens, but joy-filled pursuits. That's the power of the gospel. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The gospel frees us to restfully obey restfully obey. Again, I hope today is the day that the the guilt falls off of your shoulders and you begin running with a clear conscience knowing that, that God accepts you, that he loves you. And even when he calls you to further obedience, he has given you the, the standing and the power to pursue that 
without condemnation. Another question that we may be asking ourselves this morning is, can obedience be overemphasized in the Christian life? Can obedience be overemphasized? Now, while I submit that an emphasis on obedience is, it shouldn't lead to guilt in and of itself, I still think there's a way in which we can overemphasize this idea of obedience. On the outset, I think just generally speaking, as we consider guardrails, that I think we are wise as Christians to emphasize as much any idea as much as the scriptures do. God is speaking through his word, and so uh, the the scriptures spend a lot of time speaking about the necessary component of fruit-bearing in our lives. So we shouldn't try to soften the emphasis of of doing the word. But with that being said, I think there's a way, again, in which we can overemphasize obedience. And that is primarily seen in emphasizing obedience in a way that decouples it from faith. That decouples it from faith. If the Israelites had a history of hearing God's words but not doing them, they also had a history of doing his words but not drawing near to him in the process. A prime example for us is recorded in Psalm 50. This is, this is uh, just, this is important. God says this to his people. He says, hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. God's rebuke is not about, in this passage, not about the number of sacrifices or the kinds of sacrifices. It seems that, at least in Asaph's day, the the man who wrote this particular psalm, that the Israelites were doing a pretty good job of offering the correct sacrifices on the correct days at the correct festivals, and, uh, and, and the correct kind of animal. And yet, this is what God's rebuke is actually saying. Further in the psalm, he says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Later, he says, The one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. The one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. Again, God was not telling the Israelites to stop making sacrifice, to stop observing the sacrificial laws, but he was calling on the Israelites to to align their obedience with thanksgiving, in a sense, with faith, with, with drawing near to God. The whole point of the sacrificial system was not that the blood of bulls and goats had some miraculous power to take away sins, It was that by believing the Lord, by drawing near to him through these sacrifices that God said would take away sin, that indeed it was counted to them as actually happening. And so this idea of faith must be coupled with obedience. We see a very similar thing in the day of Jesus with the Pharisees, a prime example of obeying without faith. Jesus offers this scathing rebuke in their presence. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In essence, Jesus is saying, Hey, great, Pharisees, you have been obeying Deuteronomy 14.22. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. 
great, you're doing a good job at that. You're tithing your dill. You're tithing your cumin. You're tithing all, all the other spices that you have. But do you think that God is ultimately concerned with having a storehouse of cumin? Is that really what his big priority is here in having that commandment? Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees and saying that you neglect the weightier matters of the law, including being full of faith, faithfulness. This shouldn't have been a new revelation for the Pharisees. They had the prophets, right? Micah, what does God require of you, oh man? He wants a people who walk humbly before the Lord in faith. And out of that faith comes all sorts of obedience, all sorts of, of doing. And so as we consider the second question that might arise, we know that obedience can never be divorced from faith. Never. We've seen this in our study of Hebrews, which concludes next week, by the way. We've seen it in this, the great chapter 11 of Hebrews, the, the great deeds of the people of God. It's really a chapter about faith. It's not called the hall of works. It's called the hall of faith, right? And so we, we, there is a way in which we can overemphasize obedience, and it's done primarily by decoupling and by neglecting faith in our lives. Now, you might be wondering as well, as we look at a third question, that really this whole sermon and this concept of hearing and doing, is this really just an oversimplification of the Christian life? Is it oversimplifying things? Maybe you've heard me this morning and you're saying, okay, 2024, it's hours away, so Pastor Brett's just saying I need to hear the words and do them. I'm going to be good. I won't need June 1st as a recommitment day. I'm just going to, just going to roll with it. Now, again, hearing and doing is a biblical concept. I hope we've established that this morning as we've seen the scriptures unfolded. But within this resolution that we are calling ourselves to today and into the next year, there needs to be an essential component of hearing and doing. And that component is Jesus. The component is Jesus. In our hearing and doing, we must be with Jesus. We must be with Jesus. What does Jesus say in the Gospel of John? He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. The hearing and doing of the Sermon on the Mount, James 1, and elsewhere that we've seen this morning, is to be practiced in relationship with Jesus, in pursuit and pleasure in him, a joy in him, a love for him, those who truly love doing the word of God truly love Jesus. It's often we, we, we see a, a text like this, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And we often will look at that and say, okay, I just need to prove my love by obeying. And if I obey, I must love him. Is that really what Jesus is getting at there? If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love, you will do I think Jesus is saying that rather our obedience is flowing out of our love for him. That's what allows us to continue to do the word. It's to be in love with Jesus. Do you love him? Do you love Jesus? Do you love being in his presence? I'm not asking do you love the things of God or do you love the, the truths that Jesus stands for? or the worldview that he creates. I'm not asking you those things. 
Although, it's really important to love those things too. But do you love Jesus? Him, a person, the God-man, who's right now in heaven? Do you love him? I can't help but think of a, a time on the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee 2,000 years ago. Peter has denied Jesus three times. And he's now in the presence of the very man he rejected, the now resurrected man, Jesus. And Jesus asks him a question that I think all of us need to ask ourselves. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus who knows everything, knows that Peter has a lot of doing ahead of him, a lot of work to be accomplished, a great commission even to hear soon and then to start to fulfill. But in all the doing that, that Peter is about to embark upon, Jesus wants him to know and us to know that the heart of our relationship with God is not in the things that we do for him. The heart of our relationship with him is, and not, is not in the ways in which we obey him, but it's love, love for Jesus and a relationship with him. You know, it's alarming how easy it can be for us, how easy it can be for me uh, to strive to do the words of God, but miss altogether Jesus, to miss him. The pharisaical heart that runs deep within me is saying often, you can do without Jesus. You can do without Jesus. Don't miss the double meaning there. Do without Jesus. I wonder, you know, when I get to heaven, am I going to hear God say, welcome, Brett. Uh, I see that you did a lot of doing, a lot of hearing, and uh, you, you seem to, to strive to to be obedient, uh, imperfectly, of course, but you, you, you strove to do that. But I have this one thing against you. You abandon your first love. You abandon your first love. Is God going to say to me and, and maybe to others in this room one day that a fundamental part of doing my word was being with me, was walking with me, was loving me, pursuing me, is God going to say one day, I love all the things that you did, but I wanted your affections more than your actions? May we work hard this upcoming year to do the will of God. It's not an oversimplification to describe the Christian life as hearing and doing, but in the doing, we must pursue intimacy with Jesus intimacy with him. It's out of a love for Jesus that the doing comes. As we begin to, to land the plane this morning and, and conclude this sermon, continuing this theme of love, 
I want to ask you, have you ever heard of a man named William Featherston? No hands. William Featherston. William was born in 1846 in Montreal. And when he was 16 years old, he decided, I don't have a lot to do. I don't have a phone. I'm just going to write a poem. He spent most of the night writing a poem. And he wanted his aunt in Los Angeles to hear the poem, to read it. So he sends it to her. And she was so moved by the poem that she wanted to seek its publication. She wanted others to be moved by it as well. The tragic, the tragic story of William Featherston is that he would die only the age of 27. So he writes his poem at 16. He dies less than 11 years later. And years after his death, music was put to the poem, and a hymn was born. It's number 210 in the hymnal. And he wrote these words. He said, My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. I'll love thee in life. I will love thee in death. And praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath. And say when the death dew lies cold on my brow, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. In mansions of glory and endless delight, I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright. I'll sing with the glittering crown on my brow, if ever I love thee, tis Jesus, or my Jesus, tis now. Surely, William Featherston, a man none of us has ever heard of, loved Jesus. 150 years since his death, and hours away from 2024, what are we resolving to do? What's our resolution? May we be a church that regularly hears the word in sermons and in small groups and deep groups and life groups and conversations, and then strives to do the very words we've heard. A church who builds her house on the rock. And through it all, as we seek to be doers, and not just hearers only, may this year, this upcoming year, be a year where we say many times, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Let's pray. Father, as we enter this new year, we've considered your word. We've considered many texts this morning that you've inspired for our good. And Lord, we ask now that you would fill us with your spirit so that we would be able to not only be hearers of your word, but be doers as well. Lord, we ask that in the midst of our doing that we would not forget you, Jesus. That, that an integral part of doing the word is being with you and pursuing you, having a love for you. Lord, we pray that if anything else this upcoming year, that, that our love for you, Jesus, would grow. And out of that love would come much obedience and much joy-filled pursuit of all the things that you call for us to do. Lord, we pray that the gospel would continue to bear fruit in our lives, that we would be rid of guilt and shame, and that we would see you as a God who loves us and has done everything for us and will continue to do everything for us into this new year. Father, we, as a people, just ask now that you would bless us 
and bring us into this new year with much joy and much rejoicing. We pray these things in your name. Amen.